whatever. I don't know. I just remember being like, this is delicious. This is great. This is like, these people have figured fast food out. I've been wasting my life not eating at this place. No, that's, um, this is the, the tiniest pet peeve of mine. And it almost never comes up. But when like people say that they, they don't like the taste of fast food or that it tastes bad or gross to them, I'm like, you shut up. Like, it's not good food. I'll give you that. But scientists have been spending generations to make it as broadly appealing as possible. And that doesn't exclude you, tough guy. All right. You want to live a healthy lifestyle? I get it. You want to tell me this, like, mass of grease and salt and carbohydrates isn't delicious? Go fuck yourself. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, there's a laboratory of people who are figuring out, you know, with the current constraints of the supply chain. Sure, sure. What is the best meal that we can get to you for like under six dollars a pop and they with those with those variables they do amazing work yeah and since we're talking about fast food uh loves you know the only other thing in real life we would talk about that isn't just our video game and media hobbies i guess you're listening to an episode of the big bang theory theory hi i'm nick and i'm kyle And this is the show where technically we watch the television show, The Big Bang Theory. uh, And in spite of doing it for about seven years, we actually get worse and worse at discussing the show itself, much to everyone's delight. Um, And when we're done talking about that garbage, we talk about things we actually do enjoy. uh, And we're going to start that process now. And the episode that we have watched for today's episode is we are now in season seven, episode 15, officially titled the locomotive manipulation and kyle um i might commit to the bit here i feel like there is one moment and one moment alone that i want to focus on for the next six hours of dialogue but before we get there the summary of today's episode from the fan wiki is for valentine's day amy plans a romantic weekend trip to napa valley on board a vintage train accompanied by howard and bernadette leonard and penny opt to stay home but have an accident while watching Cinnamon for Raj. Um, <laughs> My favorite thing about that summary is that they don't tell you Cinnamon is a dog. Right? No, I had the exact same thought, and I wasn't sure t- whether to bring it up, but the fact that you're laughing at it makes me feel better. Yeah, they, they, they don't say Cinnamon the dog. They don't say Raj's dog Cinnamon. Cinnamon, you know, could be anyone. Could be anything. Or I like, I mean, yes, I do think, I like the idea that it's like his pet stripper, but also... Uh, I like the idea that they're like, you know, he's he's from India, and so he must be therefore a spice trader, and so they're just sitting on a gigantic pile. It's like Breaking Bad, but it's cinnamon, and they're just like, oh no. Well, and also when they they say an accident happens while watching cinnamon, that's true in that they are broadly engaging in the activity of watching the dog, but specifically, it's when they're off fucking in the other room because it's Valentine's Day, and that's what lovers do that uh, Cinnamon the dog gets into a box of chocolates and devours it. And so then they they panic about getting the dog to the vet. And, um, you know, I guess this is, you know, a B-plot here. I may as well just wrap it up. Yeah, although I can just say, as far as Big Bang Theory scenario goes, one of the more reasonable, like, realistic, that entire thing seems like something that could have, like, has definitely happened to someone in real life before. Absolutely. And like, I also not these same details, but have been part of um, a panicked pair of people just trying to get someone's dog to a vet, not knowing whether we just accidentally murdered it. And so 
Um, yeah, you're right. An actually fairly relatable experience. Um, and then, and something that Not is... funny, but relatable. Well, the time I thought it, it, it happened, I thought it was kind of funny. I just didn't want to go too much into it, because I brought it up before. It's where... The, where my roommate's dog may have eaten a bunch of pills, but we weren't sure. And I was too high to drive, and my friend couldn't drive without her glasses. And so she she drove, and I sat in the back seat with the dog, calling out street signs so we could try to save this dog's life with our powers combined, trying to create one functional driver. Uh, we did it. It worked fine. Um, but what happens uh, after they get the, the dog to the vet is... Uh, Ross shows up. He's distraught. He can't believe they were so irresponsible. But then he gets uh, chatty um, completely accidentally with the, the, the cute veterinarian, the babe veterinarian. Um, and the only the only move he pulls here is genuinely loving his dog. Uh, that is enough for, for her to, to latch on. And I, that's a negative way of putting it. No, she seems very nice. I'm sure she'll have mysteriously died by the next episode. <laughs> But um, for now, that that wraps up that plot. And then as for like Leonard and Penny, they, you know, they are the instigators of this, but they had no real plot of their own. This is technically Raj's show. They were just fucking in the middle of it. Um, and then, to quick summary, uh, Sheldon's side of things, our our a plot here, and you know something that maybe could I I think could have had more time spent on it is, uh, Amy, kind of has like a an annual relationship check-in with Sheldon. And this just happens to be happening uh, before Valentine's Day. And she makes one of her demands for the upcoming year to be that she goes out for a Valentine's Day, like a traditional romantic Valentine's Day thing. Uh, Sheldon objects in general. Uh, and then um, Penny, I mean, not, not Penny, but Amy says like, okay, we're going to stay at a bed and breakfast. And that sucks. It's going to be with... Uh, Bernadette and Wallowitz, like, that still sucks, and we're gonna take an old-timey train to get there. And now Sheldon's fully on board. And speaking of on board, oh, they get on the train. The the two couples have dinner, everything is going more or less fine, except that Sheldon, uh, of course, fascinated by all train details, is asking anyone who will listen to him about uh, the minutiae of the train's mechanics, it's someone overhears him at another table. Turns out this guy is a former UPS worker who, as he mentioned several times, had a box fall on his head, and now he goes around collecting disability and riding old-timey trains, which is both the most fulfilling thing he can do with his life and the tragic state of all he is capable of doing. Uh, and something that would have been a better joke, but I still like that they brought it up at all. Um, and, I mean, the short and long of this is that Amy eventually confronts him and is like, hey... You went off to talk with this other weird beard for this entire evening. This Valentine's Day is stunk. I'm just trying to have like a romantic night with you and you just don't get it. And Sheldon petulantly is like, oh, you want me to drink wine? You want me to be romantic? You want me to kiss your mouth? And uh, ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've all been waiting for. They kiss. It's fine. I don't know. Amy's like, oh, and Sheldon's like, okay, I guess I like that too. Um, and this—that's the weird part. What, what's up with that? I don't. Anyway. I was disappointed. I wanted. I mean, this would never happen. I wanted to see Sheldon pitch full tent. I wanted to see, like, him 
still trially reacting as he's like, oh, apparently now that I've engaged in this little bit of physical intimacy, I can see that my uh, natural biological functions are taking over. Oh, this swelling, this swelling, Amy. I, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of on the, I, that's a little, but I like the idea of him complete, like going all the way, like rounding the bases entirely sarcastically. Just like, yeah, just yeah. Like, like he kisses like uh there's this scene in one of my favorite movies uh what is it not that I like the movie The Nice Guys too but the one I, I meant the other guys oh. um where uh Mark Wahlberg in the middle of it is like yeah we had this kid in all of our classes he took dance classes and we knew cuz like the joke is he's like the epitome of like the toxic masculinity and he's like everybody knew the guy took dance classes so he was you know uh, gay or whatever so we all mocked him by learning to dance and then he proceeds to like break into this beautiful dance sequence and Will Ferrell's like that's amazing you're telling me you learned to dance so well to ironically to bully someone and I feel like this has a very similar energy to it go on I, I, I'm still listening but I want, it to, I want more about this similar energy no just like I like the idea of like Sheldon is kind of trying to be a jerk here, or I, the way I read it, maybe not for you, but the way No, I no, I think you're right, I think you're right. He's trying to be a jerk, he's trying to basically throw, like, the toxic boyfriend tantrum, where he's like, oh, I'm sorry, shall I, ooh, let's drink wine, ooh, let's, so it would have just been so funny if he's like, ooh, let's take you back to the room, and I'll strip off all your clothes, you like that, you simpleton? Oh, yeah, I'm sure that you, like many others, demand such passion in a simple biological function. Oh, the way that we're sweating so unnecessarily when I could just just as easily put my biological content into some sort of syringe. But no, you want me to just completely annihilate you and blow your back out. I get it. I mean, actually, the more I say this, the more I realize this is a lot of people's thing. This, well, this, this, this bully me the whole time we're you know engaging in intimate emotional experiences because that's the only way I can feel anything. That's a lot of people's thing. Well, well, Kyle, I'm glad you you said so because this brings me to the only thing I wanted to talk about in this entire episode. The one very weird specific thing is that again, Penny and Leonard don't really have their own plot. They're just serving to instigate Raj's romantic connection at the end of the episode. That said. Before they, they run off to have sex in, in Leonard's bedroom, um, they're sitting on the couch, and Leonard does ask, Hey, what if, since we have the whole place to ourselves, we did it right here in Sheldon's spot on the couch? And, um, like, you know, Penny says, No, that's unsexy. That's fine. I get, you know, that's a pretty okay reaction, but can we just... I Talk about what Leonard is, thought he was getting, or like what he was hoping to feel He in that moment. So, wh- whatever relationship they actually have, at the end of the day, Leonard, the wacky nerd, is in a pretty fun, healthy relationship with his hot neighbor, and he gets to regularly have cool sex with someone he seems to genuinely enjoy and I bet it's a good fun time they don't really have any issues that they bring up um, and then but when it's the opportunity for to have have a special treat what 
do you want, Leonard, for Valentine's Day? His number one automatic thought is, I want us to somehow, without him even knowing it, spite Sheldon with our love and our juices. Like, I want us to grind our ass and genitals on the Sheldon spot and then we can like knowingly look at each other whenever he sits there knowing that I have befouled his sacred place knowing that he never knew he's basically he's like I want to cuckold Sheldon with the couch yeah yeah no that's he he's totally trying to couch cuck he's like hey that that indent in the seat Sheldon you wouldn't happen to notice it being any deeper would you and then Penny's like oh yeah speaking of deeper man you weren't shame you weren't here on Valentine's Day oh wow and Sheldon's you know of course is like, I don't understand what's happening here I had a nice time on a train what are you people talking about and then they go off and they bang again because now they have this secret to hold over Sheldon's head Yes, it's funny. It would be even, because that was also, that was actually, as weird as it is, that was basically the button on another episode of The Big Bang Theory, which was that uh, Wallowitz had sat naked on Sheldon's spot on the couch, and Sheldon wasn't sure that he was ever going to be able to sit there again. I was lying on a couch naked once because I was home alone. My roommate came home. They were real upset that I was on the couch naked, and I was just like, I don't know. Yeah, nasty old couch. My body can't be the thing making it filthier, right? <laughs> um, but that explanation was not in any way satisfying. But, Kyle, I don't know. So, the couch thing, to me, was the only genuinely remarkable thing about this episode. Bernadette's dress was cute. There. That also happened. What are your thoughts about this show, this episode today? <laughs> I mean, not so. The only thing I thought worth pointing out, not in the general state of the, but just because it's. Do you remember, like, I think like a month ago or so, I recommended that show Kevin Can Fuck Himself? I still have a tab open reminding me I have to watch it, so yes. So the, the only funny, uh, the only interesting thing to note to me in this episode was the guy who's the brain dead guy who loves trains. Sure. Uh, that's Kevin. Oh! Well, um, I guess I have to... You can sort of see with that general face and vibe how he would play a good, like, you know, knucklehead, uh, uh, well, just a good Kevin James stand-in. Yes, yes. I I can absolutely see him uh, being an excellent um, automatic satire of the Kevin James type, and I appreciate that. Uh, And I guess I will say... I don't know. There was something I liked about that ca- character. In a way, it felt pure in in a way that the other nerds and what they like. I, this is actually, yeah, I guess here's what I'm saying. Um, one of my problems with the nerds on this show is that they don't feel realistic a lot of the time. And I don't just mean that in the sense that uh, real nerds are not do, socially Do you mean their hobbies aren't tragic enough? I just, and, and there are too many of them and they're too... Diverse. It's basically like whatever the nerdy thing of the moment is, that's uh, the thing that they happen to be obsessed with at that point in time. If it's funny for the joke, right? So they, so they're just constantly like whatever the audience has heard of and thinks poorly of, whether it be no, that's World true. Of Warcraft or Dungeons and Dragons or Magic: The Gathering or you know Doctor Who, Deep Space Nine, whatever. They are, you know fully like fluent and into all of it and have thoughts on all of it and have seen and memorized and can debate all of it and 
in my experience, like, that's not how nerds work. If only because one of the key features of it is we don't chase social trends. We're... Th- why? We're too autistic to do that. So, the... The idea that there's a guy, and admittedly, like you said, it's a little tragic because it's not clear that he's like was always like this. He it seems more like he's some kind of uh, idiot savant with deep brain damage. But just the idea that like no, he cares about trains. Only thing he his thing is trains. He is uh, sort of like in the Barbie movie. You know, it's like my job is just beach. Uh, yeah. He's like, I am train guy. And I would actually, while I get why that would make the show impossible to write, I wish the other nerds were a little more like that, where it was less like, hey, what can we make a joke about this week? Then how can we try whatever's, tie whatever's going on to the fact that, like, the only thing that Wallowitz has ever cared about is, like, erotic Italian cinema in the 70s. And Yeah, well, and, like, you know... On the exact same thing, like, if I were to ask right now, which I will, so let's not even make it hypothetical, uh, you know, like, what is Leonard's thing that he's into, right? Like, he loves general nerd shit, but if you were like, hey, Leonard, what's what's the thing, you know, that you are passionate about that you happen to know more about anybody else just because you can't stop reading the wikis and and reliving the the media or whatever? I have no idea, you know? He just likes general nerd stuff, and... um. Right, and let's set the, I mean, because obviously part of this show is us talking about new nerdy things that we come off to come after week after week. But you, I'm sure our five or six people who listen to this show regular could easily pinpoint that if you dig a little bit under the surface, it's not actually that wide a variety of inf- – like, it's basically like, you know – Nick has a deep crippling addiction to JRPGs from, true. that are either were made in the late 80s and early 90s or are made to feel like they were made. Even the when they're not good. I can't help 90s. it. Yeah. Like uh, I'm a real fucking junk addict. Yeah. Kyle has a, Kyle has a real problem with, uh, with uh, tabletop role-playing games and particularly uh, old editions of Dungeons & Dragons. And then, you know whatever superhero shit seems to come up that week. So, uh, I, yeah, Train Guy, I thought. And actually, the conversations between uh, Train Guy and Sheldon about trains were, well, not, like, it wasn't necessarily funny or it wasn't necessarily interesting, so I get why the show can't be that all the time. But that felt more like nerdy people actually vibing than a lot of the show generally does. Yeah. I appreciate that. Well, and I think, too, like, the frustration that everyone else felt was pretty realistic because they just don't get it. And, you know, I guess Tringa and Sheldon could have done a better job of trying to invite them all in or whatever. But, yeah, they absolutely just lock in on the same wavelength about this thing that they enjoy. And, yes, it is incredibly, at the very least, inconvenient that this happens to be during his big Valentine's date. Uh, But, yeah, you're right. Like... They just enjoy it, and it's this weird, incredibly specific thing that they're passionate about. And yeah, that does feel like more real nerdiness to me. I mean, I've had that. I've had that interaction with with. But like, I remember there is someone who I am, uh, you know, I'm friends with to this day. Where our entire we were friends of friends at at a friends of a friend's birthday party. And I was sitting there uh, slightly bored out of my mind, but just trying to be a good sport. And just across the table, I hear someone go, yeah, it's like that scene in Planet Hulk. I don't know if any of you have read Planet Hulk. And I literally 
just remember whipping around and going like, Planet Hulk by Greg Pak? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, Immortal Hulk by Al Ewing? And I'm like, yeah. And that's our entire relationship is built on every like once a month or once every couple of months we will meet up and we will talk for like three hours straight about nothing but Superman comics or Hulk comics. And that's this not, is adorable. Not even, not even general comic books. Just like we'll talk about the Hulk. We'll talk about Superman. That's it. That's all we're going to talk about. This is what the truest and longest standing relationships are made of. I'm loving to hear about this. Uh, I I feel like I don't have that specific thing right now, and I'm jealous that you have a Hulk and Superman friend. <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, I that's that part. While I didn't love this episode generally, I did appreciate that. Oh, yeah, overall, it's, this is a so-so episode. That's fine. It It's another one of those things where it's like, oh my god, Amy and Sheldon had physical intimacy. Can you believe it? And it's like, yeah, I, I'm kind of just relieved, if anything, that it finally happened. That's like, yeah, of course, this was going to come. Yeah. Will they, won't they jerk around quite so much? Yeah, no, I just have to wait for, like, full penetration. Um, <laughs> Although they still didn't explain what exactly, like, Sheldon's, in fact, I'm pretty sure Sheldon has, like, had all sorts of physical interactions with various people where he has felt nothing. So I guess we're just going to pretend, like, this time is different for some reason. Yeah, she's unlocked his heart or whatever. Or maybe, maybe he has to be on a train. Maybe that's going to come up, is that, like, Next episode, he's going to smooch her in any other location and feel nothing. It's be like, oh my god, Amy, I'm sorry, but apparently this is my thing, is I only feel pleasure on trains. At least erotic pleasure. Which, to be fair, would not be the weirdest thing. No, inconvenient. Pretty weird. But something I'd be willing to accommodate. Sounds fun. Yeah. Well, Kyle, anything else about this episode? We're going to talk about things that are good. Let's move on. Okay, so I have a thing I'm actually going to recommend, and then a conspiracy theory I'm going to present. Uh, okay. Would you like to go first, or? Yeah, I'll go. So, uh, can I, this is sort of random, but first, can I tell you about this sort of uh, just? This is not really a what's good this week sort of thing. This no, you can't tell me about it. Then, God damn it, Kyle, we didn't talk about this. No, this is just it is it is related. It's basically just how my brain, why I am trapped. Uh, if you want to hear why I am trapped. Okay. How nerds get trapped. I don't know why I feel the need to do this to myself, but there's this new TV show on Disney called uh, Ahsoka, which is about mm. Adventures of a Jedi, Ahsoka Tano, uh, a character who has never appeared in any of the major movies because she was deliberately created to be sort of a a uh, new character uh, and a new uh, audience surrogate character for a TV show that came out like 15 years ago now or something, God, because we're old, um, called The Clone Wars. Which was oh, yes, yes, yes. By the guy named Dave Filoni. So I don't even know if the new show is that good. It looks okay. It, uh, it doesn't look terrible. It looks interesting, but I can't watch it. And why can I not watch it? Uh, well, there's no reason. There's no reason I can't watch it. But the reason my brain won't let me watch it is because I haven't recently gone back and watched every episode of The Clone Wars in which a mm. appears, uh, and every episode 
of uh, Rebels, in which uh, Ahsoka Tano uh, appears, which are direct prequels to this live-action TV show, which the guy making it has repeatedly said is not required viewing because it would be insane for them to make a for them to spend all this money on a TV show that would only be accessible to people if they had watched like. 80 hours of old animated CGI cartoons of course. first. But I can't do it. Can't. I'm slowly winding my way back through children's television that was created in the mid-2000s because well, you, that is just the hell that my brain has made for itself. You, you say this, and, and this is, again, one of those more tragic real nerd things, which is, I want to enjoy this media, but there's this real specific context I need to watch it in where I have to be sure I'm caught up on all the little details because I won't be able to enjoy it as much if I miss them, even if I don't know I'm missing them. Yes. Uh, and I'm not criticizing you, I'm just saying, no, I, 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 I see. Namaste. I'm to a man who has played many, many bad legacy uh, editions of old JRPGs just to understand why the modern one is getting some uh, buzz at the moment. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's where I am currently. It's like Clone Wars. It's fine. You know, a lot of the stuff on Mandalore turns out to be super important for the show The Mandalorian if you care about any of that. Uh um, anyway, but that's not what I was going to recommend this week. What I was going to recommend this week was uh, uh, this sh- this other show that I watched with uh, one of my partners that uh, we both really liked called Extraordinary. Um, and I first became aware a little bit of Extraordinary on TikTok because there were clips from it. And based on the TikTok clips, I kind of knew what it was about and I kind of thought it was the clips were funny but it seemed like a very one note show so I didn't think I was actually going to like in I never had any uh, intention of watching the entire TV show but uh, my partner wanted to watch it so we were watching it and it's quite good and so the premise of Extra- Extraordinary is very straightforward it's um, basically it's set, it's a British show it's set in modern day London and in this version of modern in the modern world uh, whenever, whenever you turn 18, sometime around the time you turn 18, you're supposed to discover that you have some sort of superpower. Um, and it is so common, again, that it is entirely mundane. So this is not like a, like a comic book universe. This is not a, um, or even a, uh, sort of My Hero Academia style universe where there are some people who are real life superheroes or vigilantes. This is like, if you can fly... The people who can fly mostly use that either to Uber other people around or to, if they're hot, you know, they they pick up their dates, you know, to, to sort of romance them as a prequel to getting them into bed, you know, well, of it's course. that sort of thing. And so the main character, uh, whose name I have already forgotten, both the actress and the what her actual name on the show is, uh, is a woman who is in her mid twenties and never generated or appeared to have a superpower as far as she can tell so she does she either has one and she doesn't know what it is or uh she doesn't have one at all and she doesn't even know which one of those is the case because no one can say for sure because it's so uncommon it's not entirely out of the realm as we discover but it's just like rare enough and everybody's the way everybody discovers their thing is so different that um it's really weird and can I make a note about world building for a second the show is really good and there are a lot of funny jokes in it but like 
the world building I think is deliberately uh, this is just how my nerd brain works mm-hmm. um, it's very focused on like the present without like explaining they never explain any of the rules of how superpowers work in this universe or how they have shaped society generally like we get several because so it's her I should just describe this. so it's her who's basically completely normal uh, it she lives with her roommate who is a woman who can talk to who can channel the dead and mostly uses that as a lawyer uh, in a contracts office to sort of help renegotiate contracts with dead people um, okay and then uh, her boyfriend her roommate's boyfriend who is a guy who can uh, magically rewind time but only about 30 seconds at a time um, and then um, in the first episode they get a cat um, which they named Jizzlord for funny reasons and it is there is any non funny reason to name a cat Jizzlord <laughs> that's true well it gets even funnier though because uh in one of the best jokes of the whole show, it turns out you find out at the end of the first episode, not actually a cat. Uh, he's a human shapeshifter who who lost control of his powers and was trapped as a cat for like several years. Mm. And so, at the time that he is, when he first transforms back into a human, he has no memory of like who he is or what his life is or like what he did before. He just has a bunch of. He speaks English, but that's about it. And he doesn't even know his own name. So they continue. They let him live with them, and they continue to call him Jizzlord. I hoped so, because I feel like show. he is nonetheless obviously a jizz lord, yes. Um, and he is one of the best things about the show. So it is um, very funny, and it's very funny on an episode. Oh, and so I was, I, just the thing about the world building that was fine, but, you know, it's just how my brain works. Is like So the dead girl is, uh, is, or the girl can talk to dead people. It's constantly channeling them, and there are some pretty good bits. Like she channels Adolf Hitler... Uh, so that they can just tease Adolf Hitler about how shitty the world would be for him now. It's like, oh, Hitler, look at us. We're in an interracial relationship. Doesn't that make you sad? Uh, Pretty good. And stuff like that. And uh, she channels Charles II, who turns out to be, like, this very charming, roguish fuckboy. But they never explain, like, so in the past, did people have superpowers? Like, was World War... Like, obviously, all of these historical figures are the same ones who are prominent in our time. But in, like, World War II, like, did Hitler have a superpower that was just particularly useless in fighting the war? Or just, like, anyway. That's something I care about that no one writing the show quite reasonably felt the need to, like, (laughs) dive into the deep depths of. Because it's just not that kind of show. Uh, Instead, it's a show which uses the metaphor of uh, not having powers uh, in a world where everyone else has a cool power as sort of just a a, a analogy for what it's like to be sort of a depressed, underachieving 20-something, which is really easy to resonate and relate with. So you follow the main character as she, like, deals with the fact that her life has never really felt like it is going anywhere, has gotten any kind of track. Um, while everybody else has more opportunities than her. And, you know, she she associates that with the fact that she uh, doesn't have any superpowers. But, you know, as we see multiple times, a lot of it just has to do with the fact that she's generally kind of self-sabotaging and, you know, doing 20-something shit. Like, you know, uh, fucking, fucking the guy who can fly 
uh, who's incredibly hot but ridiculously emotionally unavailable again and again and again instead of seeking out healthy relationships. Which, you know, I get it, though. He is good-looking and can fly. Um, that goes a long way. And the other thing I like is, is there are a lot of funny jokes and funny bits that um, in a different type of show, or what I really mean to say is in a badly written American version of this show, I feel like they would make once and then never come back to again. But instead they sort of like, you know, uh, they continue with them in a way that like sort of builds out the characters and the feeling of the world like uh in one of the in the very first episode she goes on a tinder date with a guy whose thing is uh that he can make people orgasm by touching them like any physical contact and that uh they immediately come and she's like that sounds awesome he's like well you would you would think that wouldn't you but actually it's ruined my entire life and especially my relationship with my family as you might imagine uh you know i first discovered this the first time my father ever told me he was proud of me and he wanted to shake my hand in my entire life and we definitely don't speak anymore um and so and so he like wears clothes. that seems like a good reason to stay in touch if anything <laughs> like, i don't want to make this weird son but could you do your dad a solid and yeah just a so, pat on the back. So that's uh, so in the first episode, you meet this guy, and you're like, okay, I get the I get the sense of this joke. It's kind of funny, uh, and you're like, well, we're never coming back to this again. But instead, you like in the background throughout the season, you follow that guy's whole arc from being like kind of embarrassed and standoffish to trying to embrace it to you know going way overboard with trying to be like some kind of cool fuck boy, uh, and just like. It's just like, you know, and that's just one background element of this show that I feel like is pretty well written. You know, it's only like six episodes because it's a British show. So, you know, it doesn't overstay its welcome. Well, and if you could remind name of show and where to find. It's on Hulu. So I know you have it. And it's called Extraordinary. Okay. Extraordinary. I will check it out. I'm trying to actually get back to watching reasonably sized TV shows again. And it's been going Okay. Uh, this isn't my recommendation, but for instance, I watched uh, Champaign, Illinois recently, uh, which is an Adam Pally and Sam Richardson comedy vehicle, and is like, oh, well, what a delightful way of showcasing these two talents in an otherwise unremarkable television show. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, well, were you finished with your recommendation, or do you have anything else you want to say about uh, Extraordinary? Nope, that's it. Okay. Well, I'll move on to my uh, recommendation and, again, conspiracy theory here, which is the recommendation is going to be the film Bottoms, which I knew nothing about going into. Didn't know a thing. But a friend was like, hey, I want to go see a movie. Let's do it. I did. And, oh, it was excellent. And I don't want to spoil much about it. And so I'll try to be sparing with the details. But um, the, the very basic premise is that two young women, you know, teenagers that are not actually played by teenagers in high school um, are frustrated because they are unpopular uh, virgin lesbians. And they're like, ah, how do we get cool and have sex? We have to figure out a way to do this. And they decide that uh, they could probably get a lot of uh, girls all horned up or whatever if they were to have some sort of self-defense slash fight club where they were empowering each other, but also, you know, wrestling around and grabbing each other's boobs and butts or whatever. And so that is the, the very basics of it is that, yeah, like two teens are like, let's, you know, kind of prey on our peers in a faux empowerment way. And um, that is the beginning 
of what opens up, I think, a much better exploration of feminist uh, themes and concepts than Barbie gets anywhere close to touching. And there's no reason to shit on Barbie here. I still think Barbie is a fun movie, but also whatever it's... It's not like the feminist manifesto of the 21st century. No, and I thought its messaging felt very muddled. And like at the end of it, I was like, I'm not sure what you're trying to say here, Barbie. With Bottoms... I feel less like it even does try to have a specific message, but I feel it's just much more comfortable playing in that general space of like what it is to be a woman or a young woman and to like feel safe and to be yourself and all these other teen things. And ultimately it's, it's a stupid horny comedy. Like, you know, much to my chagrin, it's not like older TNA comedies where there's actual TNA. All of it's done a bit more respectfully than that. Yeah. Can't show teenagers having sex anymore. It's just not not cool. Yeah, well, there should be like asterisks in the introduction credits, which you know, asterisk over any teen who is not actually played by a teen, so you don't have to be uncomfortable about whether they're getting naked. And the ones that don't have asterisks, you're not going to see them naked. And if you do, a number comes up on the screen. It says, "Call these people. They did it bad. This person didn't consent to this. They did it wrong." Um, so I don't know why that number would still be in there if, you know, they put it there. Cause that thinks, you know, maybe they caught the mistakes that way, but I don't make movies. I don't know how this shit works. Anyway, it's a great movie. It really, uh, like I said, I didn't know anything about it going into it, but it really surprised me. And, um, I, I, I thought it was genuinely hilarious and, and want to go see it again. So, uh, that's my recommendation. And then as for my, my conspiracy theory, I, I did message Kyle the other day to say I've started playing Octopath Traveler 2 and, um, Boy, boy, is that a bowl of oatmeal. I tell you what. And, uh, I, you know, and this isn't anything to get really into. I just, with all the talk about how AI is going to take away writers' jobs and whatever, I'm looking backwards at, like, the last at least five years of Square Enix output, and I feel like AI has produced all of its games. And, <laughs> like, this, like, this is absolutely one of them. And it's, like, it's so everything about it is baseline serviceable characters interact just barely enough to have motivations to move to the next loosely constructed scene and you know like i started you you pick you know one of eight characters and then you follow them and you can interact with uh other of the eight in your own journey it's weird though because their plots don't combine at all you just follow your own main character's plots and everyone else's um, just a sidekick unless you want to follow their own main plot but there's no weaving between in a meaningful way um, but yeah more so it's just like I started it as the thief and it's like oh you're a thief you do the bad things a thief does you're uncomfortable with it oh the guys who trained you maybe they're actually kind of evil after all they trained you to be a thief and that's not usually socially acceptable what are you gonna do and it's like god and then I started playing as this magician. And it's like, oh, you like magic, but it's too powerful. Tragic family story. Now you have to go get revenge against a man named Harvey. How can I take a man named Harvey? Harvey can kill my family. And I'll be like, it must have been a mistake. His name is Harvey. He's not capable <laughs> of it. It's, and like, I'm playing it because uh, mostly I, uh, as, as I occasionally reference, I am in fact an attorney. I had a jury trial earlier this week. And it wasn't that big of a trial, and it all went A-OK. My man is back walking the street, so watch yourselves if you get into a dispute and you see someone with a tire iron. But um, at the same time, uh, that shit just stresses me out, and so I needed to decompress. 
And I figured Octopath Traveler 2 would be like just the warm blanket to wrap myself in. And in that sense, it was. When I was feeling just shitty and wanted something to just keep my mind occupied, it was great. And then I was playing it earlier this morning, and I'm like, God, I hate this. What is, what is, like, this is just so blah. It's just to waste time. And I genuinely believe that, like, there weren't actual writers, and there haven't been on a lot of these things. Like, um, Bravely Default, like, that name alone. Like, that's, oh, and then these other... I, I tried playing the, the latest, like, talk tactics reimagining, what, triangle strategy. Same thing. It's all just the most bland, basic, serviceable gibberish. Uh, and there's, like, no... There's no humanity to it. You know, it's kind of like... I've heard one theory about how AI might be used against... Well, not against writers, necessarily, but in a disadvantageous way is, you know, use it to produce basic scripts, have actual writers come in and refine them so they don't sound like they were written by soulless robots. And it feels like these kinds of games did never take that follow-up step. Um, so, yeah, as Kyle mentioned, these are the things that I cannot stop playing, even if they're garbage. And this is just another example of these, like, garbage pseudo-retro games that I can't get enough of, but they're just soulless. I can't... There was so much defense of this game, and I got it because I heard it was so much better than the first one. But it is uh, remarkably uncompelling. Uh, so go go watch Bottoms. <laughs> you know, I did. It's funny because I was just reading an article about um, uh, Square Enix, and yeah, it's basically oh, they're they're, they're tanking. Yeah, and not only they're financially tanking, and they got to turn it around, but uh, but basically like. Yeah, it, the the subtext seems to be like they have took they don't know how to make good games anymore. Like I mean that should be obvious, but from everything that you just said, but it's just like they are very explicitly like it is watching people trying to like rediscover. It's like watching you know Disney being like we used to make good movies, right? People liked our shit. Mm-hmm. What what did we do? Can we just can we figure out how to do that again? And they can't because I mean, and I don't take any glee in it, but. Uh, I have talked. The closest thing I have to a deep emotional connection with the JRPG is my uh, fascination with Final Fantasy IX, which I won't get sure. into again. But I will say, I was recently reading uh, an entire uh, like book written about the making of that game, and uh, it's just wild how much work and care and thought went into like all of the stuff in that game and i don't just mean time because obviously a huge amount of time and resources go into these games but it was like also like people were like no we want you to feel certain things when you right. play <laughs> and we want you to have like we want you to have specific emotional experiences with these characters we want you to feel like you're watching a play and we want the play to have this kind of structure and it's like they used to know how to do all of that and ironically all of the people who made that game None of them work at Square Enix anymore. No. So. Yeah, I don't know how that happens. Where in, With Square, I've brought it up before. It's probably not fair. I like to blame Tetsuya Nomura for somehow hollowing all of that out. But he's just a guy. He's just a guy that happened to be particularly successful and just happened to oversee what seems to have been a real bad period for that company. But yeah, it's like, where does the disconnect happen where... You are no longer, you know, and I, I won't 
get too much into like Final Fantasy 15, but there seemed to be a lot of indications that it was just a trash heap and that it needed to be salvaged last minute so they can put out a game at all. Yeah, it's I like mean, it seems like a lot of it has to do with just like the nature of modern development and graphic cycles and things. Like there's no room to play around. Oh, I you have to Sorry, I saw something about this exact thing, but just recently in like an economics video. But go ahead. <laughs> well, I yeah, I don't. I'm just guessing, but it it seems like part of the problem is you have to like decide where you're going to allocate your assets so early in the process. So like, if you're like, this needs to have like a big giant monster fight. It's like even when you like, you might eventually get to a point in the process where you're like, actually, the big giant monster fight doesn't really fit with what we're going for at all. But it's like too late because we spent like. $50 million uh, figuring out how the big monster fight was going to work. So it's going in the game. Just deal with right. it. Well, and so that that does link with the, the video I was watching, which um, there's also just a minor recommend this YouTube channel called How Money Works. It's just a nerd that explains economic trends and such in a fairly digestible way that doesn't, to me, sound like complete bullshit. And something he was talking about... Um, was with game development and how it is traditionally... I can't remember the two different terms for the development cycles, but how what what you're describing has been the traditional thing, which is, well, we have an idea, we're going to spend the time and money to make it, and if it works, great, and if not, we will have just spent three or four years investing in a complete dud from which we will see little, if any, recovery. God, uh, help us. I hope we have another... Other, enough other projects to float us during this disaster. And then there is what has been the more modern uh, style, which uh, dovetails with the unfortunate rise of games as a service, is if we can generate some sort of guaranteed income stream, we're going to have a whole lot less time shitting ourselves about the uncertainty of whether our big investment is going to be a total bomb. But you need to constantly produce so much content to keep that income coming that you end up with a overall lower quality, more rushed product. And I don't know if that's specifically what's going on with all these games like that we're talking about here, but yeah, it seems just like it's like a it's a way of dealing with like development insecurity, it seems. Yeah, it's like we did yeah, it's like we have to at the end you have to sh- I mean, I feel like a lot of that is like that was obviously what happened with like the cyberpunk game. It was like at a certain point they were like, "Well, this still doesn't work." But if yeah, we're we're we've tried. We told the world it was going to be the best thing ever. We told them so hard we cannot back out. Yeah, it's and it's also like we have to start making some money at this company, or or everybody's going to be in trouble. But yeah, and also this I do think is particularly to Square Enix though, and where it seems like they shoot themselves in the foot a lot. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I feel like other game companies probably do this too. I just it's so much more noticeable with Square, which is they shift goalposts. Like, they'll be in the middle of a game. They'll be, like, three years in, and all of a sudden they'll be like, you know, uh, what if this was, like, a life service game? Or, like, what if, you know, we put, like, a racing component or something? Like, what's really popular right now that we can suddenly add mm-hmm. into this uh, into this game that it absolutely does not need, but that we think is really hot right now? Man, we... I feel like we did a weird thing here. We talked about recommendations is great, and now we're just like, ah, let's just complain about the nature of the video game industry. Arr. Okay, well, let's turn it back. Uh, how do we turn this around? I had a thought. We can turn it. So, uh, the, the so. other games I still enjoy 
Dead Cells is great. That's a game that keeps producing content mostly for free, and it's always good. Uh, well, I was going to talk about Baldur's Gate for a second because I got that. But Oh, sure. shit. Yeah, no, do tell me about that real quick because that's one where I should absolutely get into it. And it's a stupid thing where I'm like, oh, I don't want to spend too much time playing it. I'll spend all this other time on bad games instead. Well, here, so here's the thing, and I'll be, I think I'm going to get over it. I think I'm going to like this game. It's a little too much for me. It is, it is so, it is very good, I should say, or it, it is very thoughtfully made and thoughtfully written, and uh, mechanically it's very satisfying. Uh, it is, A, it is very hard. Um, oh! Uh, like, not unplayably hard, and also I think there's, like, an easier mode of the game that I just didn't pick. But if you play it on, like, the default setting, then, uh, then it is actually pretty hard. You just get like some brutal rolls. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it's like uh, your character. I mean, one of the things I think that, uh, as far as I can tell, um, well, I don't know. I don't know how they balance the encounters, but it doesn't feel like the NPCs are noticeably weaker than the PCs. So you are in one of those like uh, XCOM style situations where. Um, Actually, that's not because in XCOM, a lot of times you can level up your... But you're in one of those situations where, like, your ability to, to win in a scenario is entirely uh, dependent on superior tactics and luck. And that makes... That's hard. Right. Yeah, because if you have some bad rolls, you will watch your party members get absolutely shanked. Um, and if you... Uh, if you... Um, if you just, like, don't know that how to approach like because there are there were times when i would try to approach a scenario cautiously but i just like couldn't figure out like what the buttons to get everybody in the stealth mode were or stuff and that's something i'll figure out as i go but i'll be like i thought i was stealthing i wasn't stealthing i hit the wrong button everybody stands up at the wrong moment and now my whole party is just in the middle of this room just getting murked mm. um but that's neither. That's not really a fault of the game. And if anything, that's the game trying very hard to deliver an authentic Dungeons and Dragons experience. So I think it. I think it. Yeah. Uh, it's very well written, um, and gameplay wise, it's very satisfying. It's just that the combat is a lot to handle, and it leads. And it's super easy to auto save and and quick load, and so that oh, really, it leads to the problem where. I'm pretty sure the developers didn't intend for you to play the game like one exchange at a time and constantly reloading, but you do that a lot. I've I've seen article after article about the, uh, I dare say, the ethics of save scumming, and I've been trying not to engage because I think play it however you're going to play it. But yeah, I've I've heard a lot of people like wondering whether you know it's appropriate to re-roll every bad roll you get. Yeah, and I don't, to be honest, I don't know, I, well, I don't think there's an objective answer to that question, but there's probably an answer to, does that fit in with the way you were intended to play this game? And the answer is obviously not. But then, you know, if you don't, you you have you can be left in some scenarios that are never necessarily unsalvageable, but just feel kind of, like, shitty and draining. And that goes outside the combat, too, right? Where you'll be, like, trying to convince somebody of something, and you'll just fail the wrong role, and it's like... Well, in real life, I could just try again to convince you not to be an asshole. But in this game, like, I only had one shot. Sure. So, you know, and I, you know, I gave it my best shot, and I didn't. So now I guess, you know, this, this entire scenario is just spiraling wildly out of my control. And so that leads me to my biggest, uh, 
and again, and now it feels like I'm being all negative because I really appreciate a lot about this game. Um, but my biggest pet peeve is because there are so many ways to resolve every single scenario, it doesn't really feel like any one of them is particularly meaningful. Like, like you, like I haven't been playing very long, but you enter into the situation where it's like, there's a conflict between like these refugees and this band of Druids. And I can tell there are a lot of different ways I could resolve this situation. I could side with the Druids, could side with the refugees. I could, you know, side with the, uh, the goblin horde outside the camp and lead them back in and slaughter everyone. Like there are a lot of different ways to be, uh, good, evil, neutral in this game, and there are ones that I prefer as like a character. But uh, a getting the outcome I want is incredibly dependent on like having particular roles come up the way I want, and also it's just like it feels like the entire story is basically not going to work out the same. But it's just like, uh, it's just like none of them quite have a satisfying emotional weight to them. But, you know, I haven't been playing very long, so I shouldn't critique. The other thing that I just really don't like, and I feel like was... I'm sure it was, like, them trying to implement their resources correctly. But um, you can only... You have a party of, like, eight people, and they're all wonderful, but you can only have, like, four of them in your party at any one time. Mm. And that seems ridiculous to me. Um, Because you're fighting groups of, like, eight or nine people all the time. And also... In regular D&D, you can absolutely have, you know, eight or nine people at the table playing at the same time. So why they would why they would set that party cap arbitrarily and not let you pick it yourself, how many people you want in your party at any one time, is really weird to me. And I did, I noticed apparently one of the first thing, one of the first computer mods, this is why it's frustrating to be playing this on a PlayStation, because literally like the first computer mod that anybody came out with was you can just have everybody in your party all the time. Because that's where like all of the role playing, instead of having like a straight up, you did good, you did bad morality system, sure. basically all of your characters have slightly different alignments and how you interact with people, you get, you know, they give you like a thumbs up or thumbs down about how they feel about it personally and then your relationships with them grow but that creates a situation where if i'm having an interaction with someone i'm like man my cleric who i'm trying to sleep with would really like this but they're not useful at all to like the combat encounter i'm about to have so what do i do here well kyle i mean i i have been supportive of all of these up until this moment where you're like my cleric isn't good at fighting but i want to fuck them anyway what a conundrum. Oh, that's... I mean, that's that's life, right? Isn't this... Like, oh, this person has some needs of mine that I could uh, fulfill with the relationship with them and not others. Do, do all of your party members have to be all things at all times to you, Kyle? No, but they all have... I have to go the romance arc with all of them so I can live out my fantasy of being a polyamorous bard rogue seducer of all everything that comes across his path well you know bang all of them but some you keep at the hamlet and some you take on raids you know you can't but that's what i'm saying you can't level up your relationships if they're not in your party (sighs) well that is frustrating okay i take it all back you got to get that cleric battle hardened you know (laughs) exactly right however how whatever that may mean but anyway, yeah, it's it's clearly a game that you're designed that like they're expecting you to replay it over and over again, find all the different ways that you can go. But it's also a game where like 
you know, I've been playing it for like 15 hours and I am not past like the starting area yet. So I, oh, cannot, yeah. I cannot imagine as much as I'm going to like this that I will ever touch it again after I complete it once. So No, I think that's something that's kind of ridiculous about like I guess particularly RPGs is the new game plus and the 100 plus hour game. It's like no. No, no, no. You want me to you want me to have multiple iterations of a good time? Maybe make it like a a concentrated 10 to 15 hour experience at most that does not exhaust my soul and spirit. It's like, you know, no matter how much you might enjoy, or like for me specifically, I, I can love a game more than anything else, but like, I don't want to invest so much of my life into it. That being said, just so it, I, we're, we're trying not to be negative here. So nobody comes and gets you for your internet opinion. No, I think it's... I'm not scared of people who really, really... I'm just saying, it is It is obviously a game that they put a lot of work and thought into. Um, you know, and they're trying to just give everyone what they thought they would want to the best of their abilities. So, you know, I, they did a pretty good job. It's just... It's frankly a little stressful for my disposition personally. Uh, to have to make those kind of choices and watch, you know, my uh, my ambitions for how I want things to go go down in flames. You know, it'll save you from that stress. Playing Octopath Traveler, nothing meaningful happens. No choices. You just sometimes you hit things and the numbers go up or down, and that can feel kind of good. But yeah, that's what I recommend. <laughs>